Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 83. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And we're all back in our respective homes. We're back all together. I know I was I was without you both last week. I missed you both desperately and terribly. Did you miss us? I could I, I couldn't find anyone of the calibre of the two of you to talk to. Um I had, to, I had to go right to a federal minister to even get close to, to replacing either of you. Um sorry, she's not a minister. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's a good point. A shadow minister. It actually wasn't that hard. <laughs> Let's be honest. It wasn't that hard. <laughs> that's not fair. Uh, so, yes, we're all very glad to be back and um, heading into the last remaining weeks of the year. Um, I think we want to begin by just, uh, as I sort of said last week, acknowledging uh, Child Australia and for, for bringing us out to Darwin for the Little People Big Dreams conference. Um, I can, I guess I can only speak for myself. I, I had a wonderful time. I, I spoke it a little bit so about it It was so much fun being in the same room as you guys. Uh, yeah, that was really fun. Yeah. I, don't I know. discovered I actually like both of you. <laughs> it only took two wow. years. <laughs> that, is, that is huge. That is huge. I'll we take that got, Obviously gone. We've gone to round two. We we have oh is this we're going to... we're through we're through to the final we did we everyone got a row so um so yes we we've been talking about it for a little while we uh, the child Australia was um in the, in the Northern Territory was uh, generous enough to invite all three of us to come and present keynotes and present workshops at the Little People Big Dreams conference it was a it was a really wonderful day and I think we um we want to thank everyone who uh, I guess listened to all three of us talk about our various uh, favourite things we. We got to talk about, um, and I guess a special thanks to Tina Holton, the CEO of, uh, of Child Australia. She actually appeared on the podcast in an interview talking about issues in the Western Australia and the, Nor- and the Northern Territory uh, a little while back. Um, and yes, as Leanne said, we were, I think it's now officially out there in the internet sphere via email out. We'll actually be appearing at Child Australia's conference in Perth as well. All, all three of us, um, they've, they've uh, I mean, they apparently didn't get enough of us in Darwin, and now we're going to Perth, or my other thinking was they, they want to get us as far away from, from Darwin as possible. They figured Perth is, <laughs> you know, kind of a fair, a fair flight away as well. <laughs> yes, but that's in March. We'll probably put up a link to the to the actual conference. I think tickets have pretty much just gone on sale. Um, I don't think we know what we're talking about or discussing yet. I think we will be doing a live show from there, though. I think that's the one thing we can say for sure. There'll yeah. be a live episode and if, from And Perth. if we're really lucky, everybody will be as lovely to us in WA, in Perth, as they were to us in Darwin. Yeah. They were a lovely sure. bunch of people there. Hmm. That's wonderful. Yes. And then while we're on the sort of plug section, um, I do want to say for anyone who's in uh, Melbourne, uh, in November, uh, I uh, solo will be appearing on a Mitchell Institute panel on quality and early childhood development. Appearing on some pretty cool people: Alice Ganyan from uh, the Parenthood, Sheila DiCatardi, who was on the podcast uh, not that many episodes ago, uh, Kim Davies uh, from oh, uh, I keep forgetting the ECMS. I never remember what that um, stands for. Uh, early childhood early management, management, management systems. Services. That's right. So I'm really good. System or services. I thought it was services. I thought it was services too. Who knows? We'll check that. I'll work that out. By the time I get to the panel, I will know that. Um, (laughs) But I think we all know we're all big fans of the Mitchell Institute uh, here on the show, and it's great they do these events for for the sector. So um, if you happen to be in Melbourne, I think it's November the 15th, we'll put up a link to the event. Um, It would be great to to see you there. Come up and say hi. I'm not as much fun to chat to as Lisa and Leanne, but um, I will put on my best. uh, You are? Well, I have to pretend a lot harder to not be the old boring person that I am deep in my heart. But I promise to do my best to pretend on that night if you come up and say hello. 
<laughs> it is management services, by the way. I've just checked. I know. I checked, but I, I thought, oh, hopefully she won't check. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be right just for another 30 seconds or so. Oh, so the intro yeah, section. You should know by now I will always check your facts. Mm. Okay. <laughs> That's what friends do. They fact check it. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Well, this, I mean, the opening intro kind of feels like the plug section now about various events we're appealing at. So I'm not sure when that changed from the news list to here's how important we are and we get to go to these events. But that's that's now <laughs> yeah, what it's turned yeah. into. So That's not good, is it? That's not, not great. Good. So let's leave the plug section there before we spend too long talking about ourselves and let's uh, move on to the main topic for tonight. So earlier this week, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, apologised on behalf of the nation for failing and abandoning the thousands of survivors of institutional child sexual abuse. Uh, In Parliament, he said, To the children we failed, sorry. To the parents whose trust was betrayed and who have struggled to pick up the pieces, sorry. To the whistleblowers who we did not listen to, sorry. The apology provides a bookends of sort to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which was set up by then Prime Minister Julia Gillard. The commission exposed appalling practices by organisations and individuals related to the abuse of children and also highlighted structural failures to keep children safe. Um, This week, we wanted to take a look at how the Royal Commission and the apology affects early childhood education services and what it means to be a child-safe organisation and what the commission's proposed child-safe standards might mean for children and for the sector. Um, so, Lisa, let's start with the Royal Commission. It looked like a whole range, or sorry, it looked into a whole range of historical incidences of failures to keep children safe, and some of those were in early childhood settings. Um, can you take us through maybe, you know, a couple of examples, and what are we talking about um, when we talk about failing children? Um, okay. So, look, I think, first of all, if we look at um, what it found, like, I think that there's a real there's a real need for us to do this because so many people think that it was mostly about historical, you know, um, instances of um, sexual abuse of children, whereas, in fact, there were many instances that weren't that historical. So, like, let's look first of all at how many incidences that they looked at in childcare settings. Um, There was 28. And what that means is that when they had their private sessions where people could um, write in or call them and say, I want to talk to you about something, 28 different um, uh, individuals or families came and talked about abuse that had happened in childcare setting in sorry, early education care settings. There was one in Canberra, 13 in New South Wales, five in Queensland, two in South Australia, five in Victoria and two in Western Australia. 16 of those were in centre-based services and 12 of them were in family-based, like family daycare-type services. And just to give you an idea of how modern some of those were, three of those have happened in the 2010s and two of those happened in the 2000s. So although some of them clearly happened before national regulations and um, I suppose the sort of child safe practices we now operate under, some of them didn't. Some of them operated under exactly the same situations that we've got now. So what 
um, they started off. One of the things that I thought was interesting to look at was the features that the Royal Commission said facilitated or enabled um, child sexual abuse to occur. Because I think if we think about how many of these things actually affect early education and care settings, you can see that basically there is a possibility of um, child sexual abuse happening in our settings. So the first one was unsupervised one-on-one access to a car, such as travelling alone with the child. Now, that you would think that wouldn't happen so much in um, long daycare settings, but it could happen in family daycare um, and it could happen in OSH services. Um, providing intimate care to a child or an expectation of a certain level of physical contact that definitely um, fits in our services. The ability to influence or control aspects of a child's life. Authority over a child, particularly in situations with significant control, such as a residential setting. Obviously, we don't have that, but we do have authority over a child spiritual or moral authority over a child, prestige of the perpetrator, so where the perpetrator is afforded a higher level of trust and credibility, and I think educators and teachers do have that. Opportunities to become close with the child and their family. Again, I think that's something that's typified in our sector. Responsibility for very young children, such as preschool carers, by preschool they mean long day care or preschool, um, or specialist expertise, such as the case of medical um, practitioners that enable perpetrators to disguise sexual abuse. So if you look at all of those things, they happen in our services, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing was just looking at where it happened. So in the private sessions, again, 58.6% of survivors said that they were abused in an institution managed by a religious organisation, and that means that it's a very large proportion happened in a religious organisation. The most commonly reported roles of people that abused children were people in religious ministry or teachers, right? So that again suggests that we're kind of like ripe there. Um, One of the things that I found when I was going through the report was it's exceptionally well written. It's really clear language and every word that they've chosen matters and given that it's the final report is pages and pages long. I think that's really important and I think they've really worked to ensure that they can kind of, you know, make sure everyone understands what they're saying. So they've said that 93.8% of survivors told them about sexual abuse by a male. Um, And they've said and I want to read this because it's their language and I think it explains it much more clearly than what I could. Given that most adult perpetrators are male, it has been suggested that gender may play a role in influencing who commits child sexual abuse. However, while the overwhelming majority of people who who commit child sexual abuse are men, gender is not predictive of whether or not a person will become a perpetrator. Although the majority of adult perpetrators are male, 
most men do not sexually abuse children. Does that seem incredibly clear and really, um, you know? Yeah, I, I agree on the, the language thing, Lisa, because I'm looking through, you know, dipping in and out of aspects of this um, report, which is, you know, yeah, I, I urge caution when people do that. But it um, it is very well written. And as you say, it's thousands and thousands of pages. So it's it's um, pretty impressive that it does communicate that really effectively. And, um, you know, it's it's very easy to unpack and read. All of the, all of what's written in the recommendations as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, look, the other things that I thought were important is that the factors that may de- decrease, you know, the likelihood of a child being sexually abused, and they were supportive and trustworthy adults, supportive peers a child's own understanding and an adequate understanding of appropriate and inappropriate sexual behaviour, including sexual abuse and personal safety, a child's ability to assert themselves verbally or physically to reject the abuse, and strong community or cultural um, connections. And the Royal Commission made it really clear that responsibility for child sexual abuse rests with the adult perpetrator and the institution charged with the care of the child. They said communities also have a role in preventing it, but essentially it's both perpetrators not doing it and organisations like our own making sure that children are safe in them. And when I um, broke down the figures even more, it turned out that of the reports um, made in those private sessions, only 0.5% of them happened in early education and care settings. And just to give you an example, that compared to 31.8% in schools. But there's still, you know, obviously there was 28 cases where it did happen in childcare centres or early education care centres. So um, I think that's really important. And the Royal Commission... Um, pointed out that although um, they pointed out from the Productivity Commission um, settings that um, the proportion of children in early education and care in formal care increased from 14% in 1996 to 24% in 2014. So in other words, one of the reasons why our numbers may have been so low is because not as many children were in, you know, were in um, services as they are now. So anyway, I'm, I don't want to go into a lot of detail about individual cases, um, but um, the one case that was mostly known about was the YW, YMCA case in New South Wales where um, a young 23-year-old um, uh, you know, started working as uh, an educator in an out-of-school hours care service. And while he was there, he groomed and sexually abused a, a range of boys between the age of 6 and 10. 
And the Royal Commission used this as a case study. So they had a public hearing on it. And you might remember hearing about it in 2013. Um, the perpetrator is was found guilty in a court of law and he's in jail until actually he get um, he's eligible for parole next year. Um, but uh, it, in looking at what happened and how, he, you know, it was possible for him to do this, there was kind of the Royal Commission kind of found that there was two major things. One was that the organisation's own recruitment policies weren't followed pro pro properly. Now, this guy had just come back, had been sent back from an American summer camp where he'd been found um, in a situation with a young child where it wasn't, um, it wasn't thought to be good, and so they sent him back immediately. And yet um, the YMCA didn't um, uh, check into references from that. They also found um, that uh, his application for the job should have run red flags and to those that were reading it, and it sure did for me. In the Royal Commission um, website, they actually have, like, all the documents there that were tendered through the things. So you can see the emails that the staff in the YMCA sent amongst each other. You can read his job application and the reference checks that were done on them, which is a, a kind of when I was reading them, I was thinking, God, how would any of us go if all of our you know, our processes were examined in arrears like that. But one of the um, the red flags to me was in his opening comment, like there's a, his resume was very small because he didn't have much experience prior, but it said that he wanted to be, I haven't got the exact words here, but he wanted to be in a position with children where there was no walls or barriers. Yeah, and that kind of like, mm. Mm, that would have tripped something for me. Um, but the other thing they found out about, apart from the fact that he'd started without a working with children check, it didn't come till a few weeks later, there hadn't been adequate reference checks, they hadn't followed their own employment protocols. The other thing was, was that... Um, the, the organisation's child protection policies were too complex for staff to know about. There was things that um, that particular setting was doing that was against the organisation's policies, like uh, staff were babysitting children from the service out of hours. Um, there was He was allowed to travel alone with children on a bus, whereas their policy had said there was only, you know, no child was to be left alone with a, a single staff member at any time. So there was a number of things that they had, um, you know, they'd failed on. And I think, you know, like when I read all of the other cases, I suppose what I was aware of more than anything was how easy it would be for many organisations to slip into the kind of a situation where a perpetrator could actually enter um, <clears throat> without 
Yeah, unless we are very, um, uh, yeah, like vigilant. cautious about, yeah, vigilant about what happens. And there were the the I suppose the lessons from the other cases were around things about what happened when a family or a child actually did make an accusation, how chaotic the responses were. Even in a big organisation like YMCA, they went through the right processes in that they suspended him immediately, etc. But in a lot of, like there was one case where um, a male childcare worker was accused by a parent of doing something to a girl and the director said, but we really like him. We think it's really good that um, children at the centre have got access to a male educator. She later took him off the floor but kept saying to the parent, but we all think he's really good and we're all really shocked that you could have accused him of this. And it just kind of like, you know, like one of the things that the Commission talks about a lot is the need to actually believe children when they say these things happen. Hmm. And it just kind of feels like, you know, would any of us actually, you know, like do we have a really clear complaints process? Do we actually enact that complaints process? You know, yeah, I think, what that's, any of I us think do? that is the, the point because I think, you know, it doesn't matter how many great policies you have or procedures or whatever, and Liam, you'll be more, you know, on top of this as a person in an operational position. But if you don't actually have a plan for implementing those policies and keeping those, you know, keeping on top of those and how they are, how staff are familiar with those, then there's actually no point in having them at all. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I, I've got about 50 things I want to say. I'll try and keep it to two or three. I think Lisa, firstly, <laughs> that cannot have been a fun day reading through all that stuff uh, uh, today. So thank you for doing that. It on, wasn't, I guess. but it wasn't, I, you know, like I'd actually urge people to actually have a look at the website and to read some of the cases because it does, you know, it, it's interesting. Yeah. It's instructive, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just absolutely incredible, the the level of evidence and the, I mean, just the amount of what you see on the website there. Now that you tell me it's there, I've gone and had a quick look and it's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the standouts throughout this, and I've kind of, you know, followed the Royal Commission process since it was set up by um, by Julia Gillard. And, you know, I tell you what, it was, it was great to see her back in Parliament sort of receiving a standing ovation yeah, for yeah, yeah. setting that in. Yeah, I think it's important to remember she copped a lot of backlash for doing that. It was seen as being really anti-church and was seen as sort of being a really populist move. Um, and you look at what it's led to. So I think it is really important to acknowledge you know, that under a lot of pressure, uh, she, she, she did do that. And I think, you know, Australia is a better country for it. Um, as somebody you know, who's followed that process and has read the, the, uh, not, not all of it, but uh, the, it is a, the, the, the final report covers a huge amount of volumes. We're going to talk about a couple of them briefly in, in a little while, but, um, in reading a lot of the, 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 the final report that's come out, um, is the, the, 
the issues around that I think are actually really pertinent to the early childhood sector. Um, one of them is that, that particularly that idea of, of, of listening to and believing children that I think, uh, you know, even, you know, the, the, the best of us, the, the ones who, you know, profess, you know, particular approaches to, to rights-based practice with children, I think it's a lot easier for us to say we do that than to do it in practice. And our policies and procedures are often very adult-focused and they're, and they're focused more on processes and, and, and procedures that are more focused on supporting, um, you know, adults through a particular particular process. Actually believing and, and listening to children is so vital, but it, it, it's harder than it sounds. It sounds very easy to say we listen to children, but how that actually works in an organisation um, and I remember there's a great quote out there, which is that, and this is sort of back to what you're talking about, Leanne, which is around poly- we can have all the you know all the policies and procedures in the world, um, but there's a there's a sort of uh, business saying which is that you know culture eats policies for breakfast every single day. So it doesn't matter mm-hmm. how how thick your yeah. staff handbook is, unless you have a culture of child safety, and unless you have a culture where children are, are valued and and the work of early childhood education is valued, then you know those policies aren't necessarily going to going to help you out. Um, the other thing is, I think, and it's interesting hearing you talking about that, Lisa, and, and uh, just just running through some of those scenarios. And you, you know, you didn't really go into a lot of detail around that stuff, and uh, for which I'm grateful. But the other thing is, I think, you know, at a basic level, this is really hard for us to talk about. It's really hard for those of us who work with young children to 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 sit and think about these kind of things happening. And and even though you know th- these cases are you know a minority in in the, in the you know overwhelmingly positive work that early childhood educators do with children every single day even going back you know 20 30 years these are really uncomfortable things to talk about children being harmed and children being abused particularly in this way particularly um, you know, sexually and physically is really difficult for us to talk about. These are really young children we're talking about. But I think, you know, as a sector, we have to be brave enough to be, um, you know, really striving to become child-safe organisations. And that means confronting that these things can happen and they have happened in early childhood settings. And they've happened really recently, you know? Yeah. Like this, like just that one guy in the YWCA. YMCA, had, sorry. Y, sorry, YMCA, was convicted of 13 offences involving 12 different children, 11 counts of aggravated indecent consult and two counts of sexual intercourse with a child under 10. Mm-hmm. Like... That's not history. That's something that's happened, you know, since the early years learning framework and since the middle years learning framework have yeah. been written. Yeah. And one of the, the the two final points that I want to make before, Liam, we can talk before you start talking about what can be done, but um, one of the things that the Commission um, pointed out and pointed out especially about um you know, uh, organisations such as the YMCA is that some leaders felt that their primary responsibility was to protect the institution's reputation and the person accused or the other adults involved without recognising the impact that this had on the children. And I think all of us feel a very strong, strong connection to our organisations. You know, we want to rescue our organisation. We want to ensure that the good work that we've all done for our organisations lasts. But at some point you have to think about 
do, do we actually need to look more for the children than for the organisation? I know that kind of sounds like, yeah, of course you do, but it's it's kind of hard. Like when, you know, the YMCA put out a letter, you know, a few days after um, he'd been, this guy had been arrested saying, you know, um, we've been told not to talk to you about what's happened, whereas that wasn't actually the case. And then before, you know, a few days before their appearance in front of the Royal Commission, they put out a whole bunch of letters about how they were a really well-respected organisation and how they'd made all these changes, et cetera. And the Royal Commission just kind of ripped shreds into them for that and said, it's just not true. Like, you haven't changed anything to the extent that they actually said that their CEO and the manager of their children's services were not fit for their jobs and by the end of the commission, I think both of them had, in fact, left their jobs. You know, um, one of the other people from there, they um, actually uh, referred to the police for prosecution for perjury in front of the Royal Commission. So, yeah, I think you've just got to, you know, always remember that it's about children, not about the organisation, no matter how much... Yeah, and yeah. I think yeah. Sorry, yeah. Lisa. And I think also, you know, basically, it's important to remember that no organisation, you know, the CEO doesn't suddenly wake up one day and go, you know what, let's let's become an organisation that tolerates this kind of stuff. That's not that's not how it happens. It, there are, you know, failures in a whole range of different ways, but and the only way to stop that is to is to you know work towards becoming a child safe organization a child safe organization um sorry can i just say something because i know you're going to talk about the child safe organization but i i think it's not i'm not sure that people make a conscious decision to you know come down on the side of the child or the side of the organization or whatever i think that this is it's the unthinkable and this is so hard then when you when you think that the unthinkable is happening it's not a case of going, oh, well, I'll, I'll make sure the child's okay or I'll make sure the organisation's okay. It's really just trying to work out what to do with that unthinkable that is happening. But the, but that's, and that's, that's one of the reasons why you've got to think it through before it happens. Sure. There is the possibility yeah. it happens. We've got to think through what to do. Otherwise, you will just stumble around. Well, I think yeah. you're going to stumble around anyway. I don't I think... I, I, I think that this is just probably the toughest, toughest thing that people will face if they do face it in their careers in early childhood or in, in education or in outside school hours setting. You're still going to fumble around. I don't think it matters how much you think about it beforehand. There will be fumbling around. It will be, it will be enormously difficult. Yeah, I agree. Well, well, let's move on to, I think, where we can, I guess, the flip side of the Royal Commission is um, the recommendations that the Royal Commission have made. And I think this is a gross oversimplification, but often a good way to think about the Royal Commission is that there's the the uh, half of them, so you know, more than half, but a lot of the 
the, the, the one side is the telling the stories of the survivors and, and telling the stories of the organizations that have had these failures. And then the other, the other sort of uh, side of the coin is then the recommendations that are made. Um, so uh, I want to quickly run through them. These, these are really long. So I'm not going to have time to go through everything, obviously, but I want to provide, you know, a quick summary. I also really want to echo what Lisa and Leanne have both said, which is that these documents are really readable. I, you know, I was surprised. I do read a lot of policy documents and do those kind of things, but these documents, although they're really long, they are long, but they they are utterly readable. They're not written in jargon. They're not read. You know, they they don't look like they're briefs prepared by lawyers or something. I do think the commission really needs to be applauded for how well these documents have been put together. Um, what I'm going to do so that the, the way the report is structured is there's um, a suite of recommendations and there's a range of volumes which tackle particular areas that the commission was looking at. And I'm going to recommend three parts of the final report that the, that I think particularly leaders in the sector and particularly those who have, you know, an ability to influence and change culture, which is actually everyone in a service, but, you know, those particularly in leadership and management positions, is to, A, start with the final recommendations. That document actually isn't that long. It's about 90 pages, which sounds long as I say it, but it's actually it's actually not that bad. And that lists all the recommendations that the Commission have made to the Australian Government about what needs to be done. Um, it is worth getting a really good sense of what the overall approach is. Um, but then there are two particular volumes that... Um, definitely uh, people can and, and, and should read. Um, volume six is called Making Institutions Child Safe. Uh, and volume seven, um, I'm literally shuffling them around in front of me, dear listeners. Uh, volume seven is uh, Improving Institutional Responding and Reporting. Um, I actually sent these to Office Works to get printed out, so they're in nice bound format. Um, but those two volumes, we'll include a link to them in the show notes, um, really provide a, re- a very detailed overview of the failures that have been evident in particular things and how the Commission recommends they should be addressed. Um, particularly in Volume 6, what I want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, in making institutions child safe is one of the recommendations that the Commission has made to the government is that the government institute um, what, what they call the child safe standards nationally. There are some versions of this uh, in, in existing states and territories, and I know, Lisa, you might tell us a bit about New South Wales a little bit later, but these are a comprehensive range of standards that the Commission says uh, any organisation or group that works with young children should have to meet. Um, there are 10 standards. Uh, I, I, I want to go through them. I'm not going to go through them all, obviously, but I do want to list them all. I know that's um, often not the best audio, but I think it's important to just talk about them. Uh, and then maybe for me, highlight a couple of key ones. So the standards are um, child safe policy and procedures, leadership, governance and culture, children's participation and empowerment, family and community involvement, equity and diverse needs, human resources management, child-focused complaints process, staff education and training, physical and online environment, review and continuous improvement, and child-safe policy and procedures. Um, I know that's a lot of words to throw at you. Again, go and find um, Volume 6. The Child Safe Standards are put in a really um, uh, sort of nice uh, visual format on page 145. Uh, under section 3.4. Um, the things for me I want to quickly talk about, uh, we've, we've sort of talked about this during this whole thing, you know, leadership, governance and culture is, you know, is to me, this is what this fundamentally comes down to. Um, the commission does make clear that, you know, no one standard's any more important than the others. And the way they describe the standards is as a benchmark against which institutions can assess their child safe capacity and set performance targets. Um, standards work together to articulate what makes a child safe organisation. And to me, culture is so important. How do we value children? How do we value the work of early childhood education? 
how do we value educators that culture of ensuring that children are listened to that we we you know when if we are presented with that stark choice and I think I agree with you Leanne it's never Leanne it's never quite that simple but when we know when people in leadership positions have that choice about you know decisions they take that children's best interests are put at the heart of that um, the other interesting one for me which we often don't think about we often think is a bit of a either separate or possibly annoying thing sometimes as our organization is how much of a human resources challenge this is the, to me this there's a real uh, um, there's a real part to play here around recruitment induction and orientation a lot of these problems are solved in the y, the YMCA uh, which you mentioned before Lisa was a classic example of this where there were so many red flags before Jonathan Lord had even set foot um, into a program that, you know, recruitment, induction, how we go about taking the role of early childhood educators really seriously, and that includes the people we choose to come on board, how we induct them, and then how we performance management manage them. I think there's those those two key things I think the sector really needs to take a long look at in terms of how we embed these these child safe standards. I should say as well, this recommendation hasn't as yet been accepted by the Australian government. They've accepted around sort of 90% of their recommendations. Um, I don't want to make this about bashing the government. I know we do that quite a bit, but um, the in talking with a bunch of people, this isn't about saying they don't agree with the child safe standards. It's more about that there's a there's a lot of complexity in Australia about how that's managed on a state and territory level. Um, the states and territories kind of have to sign up to a particular focus and then how that's implemented is quite um, is quite. My understanding is that it's going to COAG in um, yeah. December, and they'll it'll probably all be signed off at that point. Yeah, I think I do think it's important to acknowledge, particularly maybe for the three of us, given we have spent probably the last eighty-two episodes of this podcast not being terribly nice to nice to the conservative government we've got. I think it's important one to acknowledge they have accepted a huge amount of their recommendations, and it is clear they are working through them. Um, I, I actually do think it's worth acknowledging um, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison's apology was was um, you know for me a, a good one, um, and did you know was pretty clear in terms of that Australia failed and that we should have listened better and that they commit to to listening more. I, I do think it's worth, you know, acknowledging that. Yeah, and of course it doesn't matter that he's being totally hypocritical about doing things to refugee children on row at the same time, does it? No, well, he's not alone in that, at least, Lisa. That's a bipartisan policy. That's right, yes. I've forgotten that. <laughs> yes. Um, so I... I I, I don't know if that, I mean, that's something we need to go into discussion about, Lisa. It might be worth, at uh, least and Leanne, but Lisa, it might be worth, so the child safe standards aren't in place yet. It's likely that they will be in some form probably in the next, you know, couple of years if, if once that goes to COAG and there's some sort of agreement. But, Lisa, I know in New South uh, Wales there I is... I think a, it could be much faster than that, Liam. I think impl- look, implementing that I think will be a pretty... A pretty big logistical challenge, just even in terms of who, you know, what organisations take part. But, but, but who knows? We don't know. But, yeah. um, Lisa, I know you were going to talk about some approaches that already take place in New South Wales. Yeah. Um, look, I will. But I've all, I'll also just, um, if we could put on the blog the um, Child Safe Organisations National Principles, which is, I think, how it's going to COAG. So they go from standards to principles. I don't understand the difference, but it's a very easy to read um, uh, document. And it's got this beautiful what it's called the wheel wheel of child safety where it just looks at the things that are needed so it's things like ongoing education and training effective complaints management robust robust recruitment and screening etc and it's just a really nice visual um kind of check as to whether you're doing okay as an organization 
Um, I've had a look at, um, in previous things, the New South Wales Ombudsman's um, Child Safe Standards because uh, there's an online training module there about how to make your organisation a child-safe organisation and lots of things like draft policies and stuff that you can have. And so I'd, I'd recommend that people have a look at it. Um, but some of the things that when I read that the first time, and I feel like I might have said this on the podcast before, so please forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but some of the things are so simple that you wouldn't like you kind of think, geez, is it really that easy? If you put in your recruitment ads that you are a child safe organization, it puts perpetrators that are looking, you know, that are planning to abuse children off from applying for a job in your organization. So, really simple things like that have a huge impact. And so I think it's really worthwhile going and looking through that website and seeing what things they suggest. Absolutely, thanks. And, and um, you know, uh, Leanne, obviously you were you know, the CEO of an early childhood organisation in New South Wales. Did you find that, you know, the child safe standards are useful um, or the new, the new South Wales approach to them, you know, useful in, in that role? Oh, yeah, I think, well... I'm just trying to cast my mind back. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. Thank you. It was a couple of years ago. Um, I think that they're, they're the sorts of things that you really think through and work through with staff. And it, it, as Lisa says, it's an easy, you know, some of those things are very simple, but I think it's a way to kind of unpack stuff with staff, having the preemptive discussion that you talked about, Lisa, so that people are really thinking through um, exactly, you know, some of their own actions and some of the things that they take for granted that they do, um, which create a safer environment for children or a less safe environment for both the children and for themselves. So, yeah, I think that they were they were very useful in in reflecting on our practices um, in early childhood settings. Wonderful. I, I think the Royal Commission actually um, created a definition of what a child safe organisation was, and I think that's really useful to think about. They've said it's one that consciously and systematically creates conditions that reduce the likelihood of harm to children, so you're reducing the, the prospects of a child being harmed, create conditions that increase the likelihood of identifying and reporting harm, so having, you know, ways that children can say somebody's harmed me, and creates conditions that um, a, a response appropriately to disclosures, allegations or suspicions. And I think that in all of those, it still relies on people. It doesn't matter how many standards that you can tick off or, or you know, have as a, as a guide. It still requires people to think and that's, that's probably the, the sort of conversations that you're having in staff meetings is the thinking and reflection on what is actually safe and what's not safe because it doesn't matter how many standards you have, they're never going to give you all of the solutions in every situation. All right, so we've kind of heard a, a, a local perspective in, in New South Wales, Leanne. I think you wanted to 
tell us about an approach to child safety from the UK as well? Well, it's actually one that is mentioned within the recommendations. And I do I do love it where someone highlights something that already is in existence and is successful. So it's, you know, trying to urge us to use that rather than to create a whole bunch of new stuff that requires tenders going out in 5,000 different places. And it's within um, recommendation 6.2, which is talking about the national strategy to prevent child sexual abuse should encompass the following complementary initiatives. And it talks about social marketing campaigns, prevention, um, education delivered through preschools. It talks specifically there about working with families on their understanding of child sexual abuse as well. But it talks about prevention um, and to we should be modelling um, our particular approaches on um, a, a service that is, sorry, an organisation that's uh, implemented the model in England and in the UK and in Ireland called Stop It Now. And it's a specific model of prevention that's being used and shared across, I think it began in Ireland, um, and it is addressing people's um, when they're concerned about sexual behaviour of adults around them, when they're concerned about their own sexual thoughts and behaviour towards children. Um, and also it's just really focusing on that prevention model through professional development and uh, through creating a greater awareness. So if you get a, an opportunity, we'll put the link up with that with Stop It Now. Um, and also, of course, there are things like NAPCAN with the community safety workshops and um, all sorts of guidance around prevention. And I was thinking with the – initially I thought, oh, stop it now. Yeah, that's quite interesting. But, of course – it's really simple. If we get to that prevention of sexual abuse in and um, abuse in institutions and it's actually prevented, well, of course, that is much better than having to work with um, circumstances and situations when they've, when they've actually happened. So I recommend people go to that one that we'll put up on the website. Absolutely. All right. Was there anything else we wanted to to raise this issue? Just one of the things that um, came across to me is that the reason why Jonathan Lord was caught was because he approached one child and did something and that child went to their parents that same day and said, this is what happened. And so one child was able to say, stop it now. And because of that, he was you know, stopped in the tracks. And those other 13 children who had been abused that... Um, sorry, a lot other 11 children were then able to come out and say what had happened to them. So it just talks about the need to do preventative behaviour stuff. And believe children. Yeah. Believe children. Yeah. Mm. That seems like a good yeah. note to end on. All right. Well, that yeah. was, you know, challenging discussions, as I think we've talked about in the sector, but um, this is going to be a conversation that's ongoing in the next few years as we look at things like the child safe standards and the, and the final recommendations of the Royal Commission um, become more embedded in Australian society. So, you know, I guess we really, um, you know, put out the, the, the idea to the sector. This is something, this is a conversation we have to have. And I, I think it's also important. Mm. 
the sector is part of the conversation. We don't just sit back and sort of passively wait for, you know, whatever the next bit of regulation we grumble about is, you know, we can, we can contribute to these discussions and we can be having them, you know, as a sector first and then looking at, you know, as, as reports come out and as, as proposals come out that we can respond to that we take an active role, um, in, you know, the next generation, I guess, of Australia, uh, in, in investing in child safety and believing children. And I, and I think that we're, leaders in this area as well Liam we can be we can yeah. keep demonstrating that leadership because it is a, an aspect of practice um, that we have got some really good structures around you know everybody having um, the the actual um, certificate in in identification and prevention of, of harm and and I think that we do very well in this area. We can always do better, of course, but it is something that I think early childhood educators and outside school hours care educators are very, they're onto this and they understand it. And I guess in putting it on um, staff meeting agendas as well, it's very important that um, if the conversations are had, that staff are also um, protected within those conversations if they themselves have had any experiences. So I think that it's really important that um that we're taking care of the adults in in our settings as well in all of these conversations. Wonderful. For Very sure. good point. Very good point. All right. Well, um, we'll include a bunch of links to the things we've been talking about today. I guess, you know, the final recommendation is, you know, read as much of the report as you can, particularly the final recommendations and Volume 6 and Volume 7. Um, but we'll we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks to uh, Lisa and Leanne. It feels like a long time since we've just been the three of us talking through an episode. It is, and just before we go, um, Liam, can we uh, urge people again to call their local yes. member about uh, children being taken from asking for the children to be removed from Nauru and um, also just get on to your local member and keep trying yeah. like I do because no one in Craig Kelly's office will speak to me. <laughs> they keep going to call me back, but I'm here and I'm waiting for their call. I'm still waiting for calls back and emails back from, from my local MP as well. Yes, absolutely. That's um, kidsoffnaru.com forward slash call. It felt like there was a lot of momentum for that last week. That's kind of stalled. Um, the Prime Minister seems to have changed his mind on that kind of thing. Um, this is moving quickly, though. We're recording this Wednesday night. Maybe things have become more positive by Friday, but I doubt it. So if you're hearing this Friday morning, please, kidsoffnaru.com forward slash call. It's a really easy and simple process. All the, all the office people are very polite. They generally won't put you through to the to the MP, but at least they're polite and will take your message. So, yes, do, do please go and do that. Um, until we hear from you next week, it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leanne McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.